the joy of literature. Hello, and welcome back to the joy of serious literature. I'm your storm-besotten host, Bryant Davis, and together we'll be, as ever, diving into the sea of delight that is ponderous canonical literature. I've been thinking a lot about James Baldwin the last few weeks. As you might have noticed, there's a documentary out about the man that's been making the rounds recently called I Am Not Your Negro. And being the sort of man that I am, I went and saw it. And it was, I feel, all right, deserving of all the accolades it's received, eh, but certainly a thing worth seeing, especially for someone interested in James Baldwin, as I am interested in James Baldwin. One of the things I've noticed, though, while listening to so many people and reading so many people talking about James Baldwin in response to this documentary, is that when we talk about James Baldwin, I feel like we mostly talk about him as one of our society's great intellectuals, as this gargantuan mind that stood across the great crisis of America's 20th century, racism, and unlike the rest of us, understood it, or at least came as close as anyone ever has to understanding it. Now, that is all entirely true. All one has to do is listen to James Baldwin speak for a couple minutes to realize he possesses one of the most powerful intelligences the world has ever known. His wit, his insight, his ability to draw together hundreds of years of history, of culture, of oppression, of emotion, and turn them into a phrase as sharp as a dagger that cuts immediately to the heart of the question at hand is astounding. One cannot help but be in awe of the man. But lost, I feel, in all that discussion of his intellectual achievement on Notes of a Native Son and his friendships with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and his appearances on the Dick Cavett show, we forget, I think, that what originally made James Baldwin into a national figure, into a man who anyone on earth cared what he had to say, was his artistic achievements, his novels. People will talk to you all day about his debate with William F. Buckley at the Oxford Union, but they'll say hardly a word about Giovanni's room or tell me how long the train's been gone. Why is that, I wondered. Here we are celebrating a great American novelist by acting as if he never actually wrote any novels, or as if his artistic work was somehow inconsequential to his more important political work. Is it that his novels take too long to read? Is it that they are too hard to shoehorn into a documentary between images of Black Lives Matter protests and Kendrick Lamar songs? To try and figure this out, I decided to go back and reread Go Tell It on the Mountain so that we could examine that work, Baldwin's first of any significance, the thing that made him famous, and examine closely what it is this man, arguably the greatest mind of his age, managed to achieve with that work. And in doing that, I think we will gain a fuller picture of Mr. Baldwin and how he understood the world and what it was he was trying to do. Go Tell It on the Mountain is a novel about religion. Not God, not the divine, but religion, and what religion has done to one black family living in Harlem in what seems to be the 1930s. Like everyone's first novel, or first attempt at a novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain draws heavily on autobiography. In the author's note that introduces Baldwin's notes on a native son, Baldwin describes much of his early life in the following sentence. My father wanted me to become a preacher. When I was 14, I became a preacher. And when I was 17, I stopped. Go Tell It on the Mountain is, ostensibly, the first part about becoming a preacher at 14. Our main character is a young black boy of 14, growing up in Harlem, named John Grimes. Supremely intelligent and yet crushed beneath the immense weight of his family's poverty, 
and his father's all-consuming draconian religiosity. John, from the instant we meet him, is not only chafing against his environs, but straight up smashing his skull against them at every instant. It isn't his skin color that's his prison, per se. It's God, or at least his father's idea of God. It was said that John had a great future. He might become a great leader of his people. John was not much interested in his people, and still less in leading them anywhere. But the phrase so often rose in his mind like a great brass gate, opening outward for him on a world where people did not live in the darkness of his father's house, did not pray to Jesus in the darkness of his father's church, where he would eat good food, wear fine clothes, and go to the movies as often as he wished. The plot of the novel takes place on one single day in John's life, his birthday. It begins with him waking up, it progresses to him receiving money from his mother to go see a movie, and then returning from that movie to discover that his high-strung younger brother, Roy, has been stabbed in a sort of racial gang fight. And it is here that the novel begins to truly explode. The whole scene surrounding Roy's stabbing is this monument of high family drama. They've managed to get Roy up into their apartment, he's bleeding all over the couch, everyone is gathered around him, John's father, Gabriel Grimes, John's mother, Gabriel's sister, Florence, trying to patch his wounds and screaming at each other about whose fault it is that Roy's been stabbed. But when John walks into the room and Gabriel stops his shouting about how everything is John's mother's fault, or the devil's fault, or white people's fault, and looks at John, and John knew in the moment his father's eyes swept over him, that he hated John, because John was not lying on the sofa where Roy lay. John could scarcely meet his father's eyes, and yet, briefly he did saying nothing, feeling in his heart an odd sensation of triumph, and hoping in his heart that Roy, to bring his father low, would die. There is no such thing as an uncomplicated relationship between a father and his son, but the relationship between Gabriel and John Grimes is of war, and it is in exploring and defining this spiritual war that Baldwin proves his chops as a writer. Each paragraph is dripping with power and pride and conquest with each trying to crush one another, to dominate one another, to liberate themselves from one another. The way that all things in heaven and earth become consumed into that battle, for there can be no separating the Father from the Father. His Father was God's minister, the ambassador of the King of Heaven, and John could not bow before the throne of grace without first kneeling to his Father. On his refusal to do this had his life depended and John's secret heart had flourished in his wickedness. The sinister delight of those sentences. Baldwin's genius as a novelist is much the same as his genius as an essayist. Baldwin isn't a master of dramatic staging or intricate plot construction, exactly. He engages in no linguistic heroics in the manner of Joyce. But what he has is an overwhelming intelligence, and what that intelligence allows him to do is define his character's every feeling, no matter how cruel or complicated, with a lucidity and honesty as sharp as a razor. While you read Go Tell It on the Mountain, what you delight in is the way in which you'll never, no matter how hard you work, ever be half as smart as Baldwin. But after a while, everyone figures out that Roy is probably going to be fine. And this then frees the family up to worry about an issue only slightly less important than Roy's survival. Going to church. Gabriel is a deacon at the church and it's his duty to open up the church and get everything around for the evening prayer service. But because of all the commotion involving Roy, what they end up doing is sending John to get things in order. 
At the church, though, John runs into a young church member named Elisha. Elisha is a bit of a celebrity in the church because he's, one, the pastor's nephew, two, the recent subject of a minor sex scandal, and three, able to speak in tongues. This is important. John and his family are all Pentecostals, and Pentecostalism is a particular religious tradition in which having religious experiences of falling on the floor, speaking intelligibly, having these moments of ecstatic divine rapture are a big deal. It is a thing that is more or less expected of you. The old church ladies that end up gathering in the church that night talk about it as being saved. Having one of these experiences is the tangible manifestation of God's presence in your life and in the church. This ain't no Presbyterianism, where nobody ever really knows if God gives a damn about them, or Unitarianism, where nobody ever knows whether God is even real at all. And because Elisha has these experiences and has them regularly, he's the apple of the congregation's eye even despite that sex scandal with LMA. And there is a way that as he and John go about setting up the chairs and turning on the lights, you get the sense that John looks up to Elisha, wishes in some regard that he was Elisha, so sure in his faith, so loved by the community. Because you see, while people might admire John for his intelligence, intelligence, especially in a child, is a thing to be feared. Intelligence is sin. Intelligence is insincerity, lying, connivance, dissimulation, intelligence is seeing through people, understanding people, having power over people. You can't love an intelligent child. And yet, if John could get saved, then maybe. As John is contemplating this idea, as he is waiting for his family to show up to church and join all the gathering old women to pray and sing, Go Tell It on the Mountain suddenly branches out to include the stories of three other people, John's father, his father's sister Florence, and John's mother. Baldwin calls the narratives of these three people the prayers of the saints, because that's what's happening in the church when they arrive, is that everyone is praying, and therefore these are supposed to be their prayers. But they're not really prayers. They're more these moments of them crying out to God with their lives in their hands as they're telling their lives to God as a way of communicating with God. And it is through the prayers of the saints, you realize that the spiritual and material predicament of John is really the culmination of all their lives, all their respective sufferings, cruelties, doubts, sureties, self-inflicted and societally inflicted tortures, are all coming to a climax not in them, but in him. If you read Baldwin's essay about how much he hates Uncle Tom's Cabin, entitled Everybody's Protest Novel, one of the things he really harps on is how weak the characterization is in that terrible, terrible book. Everyone is an archetype pulled about by the puppet strings of the point the author is trying to make about slavery being bad. In Baldwin's words, her book was not intended to do anything more than prove that slavery was wrong, was in fact perfectly horrible. This makes material for a pamphlet, but it is hardly enough for a novel. Instead, he says, it is the power of revelation which is the business of the novelist, the journey toward a more vast reality which must take precedence over all other claims. It is here in the prayers of the saints that you really see this conviction evoke. Baldwin refuses to let his characters to be simple, to be dismissible, to be anything but fully realized human beings in all their complexity. In them, you read about the life of Gabriel, for example. For much of the first half of the novel, Gabriel seems irredeemable as a person. 
Like John himself, you can't help but wish death upon him. But in his prayer, you get to understand the story of his life, how he came to be the man that he is, about his reckless and self-destructive youth, about how, like Augustine, he came to God at his mother's deathbed and became a preacher. Best of all, you read about this marvelous moment when he's invited to eat with all the big bull preachers at this revival meeting, and how, while sitting with them, he hears them telling dirty jokes about the woman who's serving them their food, a woman that he knows was the victim of a horrible gang rape, and he realizes in that moment that they are all hypocrites, that they are not really men of God, but men of the devil, grown fat, sucking on the marrow of the Lord for profit. In that moment, when he stands up and confronts their lack of righteousness, he's almost a hero. Later, though, he marries that woman, but she cannot bear him children. And because of this, or so he pleads, he betrays her by secretly impregnating a pretty young, stridently unpious woman who works with him at a rich white man's house. Confused and bewildered by his own sin, he doesn't know what to do. And sensing his indecision, his pregnant paramour flees town before the baby is born, sparing possibly Gabriel's humiliation, but forcing Gabriel's son, the son he wants so badly, to grow up without ever knowing his father is his father, a distance embodied by this moment when they pass each other on the street in town, and his son belittles him with northern slang. And without that fatherly hand to guide him, his son, called Royal, ultimately ends up dead in Chicago, stabbed to death by white men, a crime which Gabriel blames himself for, a tragedy he now sees beginning to repeat itself in his other son, Roy. Through all of it, he is the same man, of course, the same man who stares death at John, but you understand why he stares death at John, why he is the man he is, why each word that comes out of his mouth is that particular word. He is a man full of evil, of selfishness, of bad impulse, and the only way he can restrain himself from the call to sin is to scourge himself inside and out. Or you read about John's mother, and how she fled the South because she fell in love, and how her love had been this man hungry for knowledge, but how fate had turned on him and thrown him to the dogs of racism, and how racism had broken him, crushed him, killed him and how it was that that man, who she had loved so deeply, had been the true father of John. Gabriel only adopted John as a sort of penance, as a way to pay for all of the sins he inflicted on his first wife. Each of them, after their prayers, feels so alive, so full of the misery of human existence, that it weighs heavily on your body, like the way their miseries must lay so heavily on John, who is so smart, who is so sensitive, who surely can feel them coursing around him and enveloping him, swallowing him. God is so important to all of them, so vital, so necessary, because without God their lives would be without hope, without possibility, just doom, just irreconcilability, just infinite misery that cannot end except through murder or suicide or some other form of the sweet embrace of death. It is painful, it is wrenching, and then it bursts, not in us, but in John, there in the middle of the church, there with all his family praying, and the church ladies praying, and a yellow light dangling from the ceiling. Something happens. The Spirit comes into John, John who refuses God, 
John who wants no part of God, John who wants to be free of God. God finds him and enters him, and he begins to thrash about on the floor and speak, to speak in tongues, to have the divine experience that is the currency of that church. Baldwin calls this final section of the novel the threshing floor, I think to create a metaphor with the separating of the wheat from the chaff. And what happens on this floor is the decisive moment of the novel. It comes at you like this avalanche of visions and feelings in John, the exact nature or meaning of which is, like almost every touching of the divine face, basically impenetrable. Then there began to flood John's soul the waters of despair. Love is as strong as death, as deep as the grave. But love, which had perhaps, like a benevolent monarch, swelled the population of his neighboring kingdom, death, had not himself descended. They owed him no allegiance here. Here there was no speech or language, and there was no love. No one to say, you are beautiful, John. No one to forgive him, no matter what his sin. No one to heal him and lift him up. No one. Father and mother looked backward. Roy was bloody. Elisha was not here. Then the darkness began to murmur. Even the sincerity of what happens in that room, with everyone watching him and cheering him on with prayers and songs, is questionable. The book spends so much time, so much of its energy, examining all the ways that religion, or this particular kind of religion, is a prison, is a swarm of hypocrisy and cruelty and willful ignorance. And yet what about John? What about what happens to him in this moment? Is it sincere? Is it real? Is he really interacting with the divine? The novel hinges entirely on that question, and yet it provides no answer. As Pontius Pilate says to Christ, what is truth? What is reality? What is sacred? What is profane? What is genuine? What is self-delusion brought on by stress and wishful thinking? There is no way to know. But something happened. Something that everyone saw, that everyone felt, that everyone stood around and witnessed. His father, his mother, his aunt, Elisha, all the praying old ladies of the church who have nothing better to do with their time than come out every evening to half-hearted prayer services that the pastor himself doesn't show up to. They heap praise on him. They tell him how proud they are of him, how glad they are to see that he's finally been saved, but not his father. The war of pride between them can have no truce, not even for the entrance of the God Gabriel claims to love so much. He going to learn, Gabriel said at last, that it ain't all in the singing and the shouting. The way of holiness is a hard way. He got the steep side of the mountain to climb. And perhaps Gabriel is right. To my mind, the real moment of clarity in the novel comes after all the singing and shouting is over. Go Tell It on the Mountain is a novel whose great epiphanies don't come with its climax but its denouement. Once the show is over, everyone wanders away. They all march out of the church and onto the street to begin this great procession into the early morning, all of them chatting with each other like college students after a concert. They had seen something together, something spectacular, but that's also all it was, a spectacle, a passing entertainment. On the street, Florence confronts her brother Gabriel with a letter detailing how his first wife knew about his infidelity, about his secret son, but he refuses the letter, saying that his past sins don't matter anymore because he knows he's been forgiven by the Lord. 
that his sins are wiped clean and that he is, because of that, an unimpeachable man. She has no right to criticize him, no right to object to him in any way, not to how he treated his first wife, not to the way he treats his current wife, not to the way he treats John. But she has none of it. She says to him, I think one of the deepest and most efficient takedowns of the way a man has lived his life I have ever read. Yes, said Florence, watching his face. You didn't give her no bed of roses to sleep on, did you? Poor, simple, ugly black girl. And you didn't treat that other one no better. Who is you met, Gabriel, your whole life long, who you didn't make to drink a cup of sorrow? What good is righteousness, Baldwin asks us, if all your righteousness does is make people miserable? What good is religion? What good is truth? Gabriel has no answer because Florence is right about him. Never in his life has he ever truly thought of anyone's needs but his own. Meanwhile, in the rear of the procession, John tries to make Elisha understand what he saw, what he witnessed. But all Elisha can offer is rote cliches about Christ bearing the cross and climbing up the side of the mountain. Elisha, you realize, is a charlatan. All of them are charlatans. The praying church ladies only care about being entertained. Gabriel only cares about his power and his self-righteousness. And yet something happened to John in that church. He felt something. Something came into him. And yet what has that revelation given to him? Not much of anything. Not the respect or love of his father. Not some sort of commonality with this handsome older boy that he looks up to. All that is left to him there on the sidewalk as they make their way back to their crappy apartment where his dumb brother's wounds are still clotted with blood is profound loneliness, the immense impossibility of telling anything to anyone on the mountain. In that moment, in that lingering denouement on the streets of Harlem, Baldwin manages to encapsulate perhaps the whole of the problem of religion, that its sincerity cannot be separated from its insincerity its faith from its charlatanism, its morality from its domination, its commonality from its loneliness. The result of religion in our lives is a labyrinth, one from which no one, once they've been lost inside it, is ever able to truly escape. So, to return to our initial question, why don't we talk about Go Tell It on the Mountain? Probably because Baldwin wrote a book about the wrong subject. When people talk about Baldwin, they talk about him almost entirely in one context. Race. If you watch I Am Not Your Negro, Baldwin becomes a sort of third person in the civil rights godhead, along with Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Now that is not an unfair appraisal of Mr. Baldwin's work. I don't think anyone ever wrote more brilliantly or powerfully about the crisis of race in America. But the fact of the matter is, our interest in Baldwin is not so much because we delight in the way his genius opens up for us new avenues of thought, but because we delight in the way that his particular genius plays into the conversation we've already decided we want to have. But Baldwin the artist strived to be more than just America's greatest racial pundit. He says in that same introduction to Notes of a Native Son, I have not written about being a Negro at such length because I expect that to be my only subject but only because it was the gate I had to unlock before I could hope to write about anything else. While his essays in nonfiction bent their energies in service of understanding, dissecting, and curing the assorted diseases that make up American racism, 
His novels seem to have aspired to be that something else. His attempts to use his immense powers to investigate the other great questions of the human condition. The trouble is, with Gotelt on the mountain, Baldwin chose to investigate the precise opposite of race, at least in terms of its place within our societal ideological discussion, the relationship between the individual and the divine. Baldwin wants to talk about religion, religion at the intersection of race, at the intersection of fatherhood, at the intersection of sexuality and homosexuality. Religion is truth, is fraud, is fraudulent truth, and truthful fraud. But religion, both are immensely vital questions. One is at the heart of everything that has happened on this earth in the last 500 years, and the other at the heart of everything that's happened since the dawn of human consciousness. But while we love to talk about race, we absolutely abhor talking about the divine. We will not do it, even when we have very strong opinions about it have thought about it at great length, we refuse to do it. It causes us too much pain. It puts too much of the fundamental ideas on which our lives are founded at hazard. The divine is the last and greatest unknown. No matter what answers you might find in the examination of that question, they will all uproot the core of your very being. And that, as Andrei Tarkovsky and Stanislaw Lem both taught us, is truly horrifying. But race... Though a thing that has caused profound horror on this earth is knowable, sensible, a thing we can comprehend, a thing we know how to compartmentalize and categorize and articulate. It's ideologically, intellectually, comfortable. But Baldwin was an artist, and artists abhor comfort. Over time, as we have become more and more fractured in our spirituality, more and more disparate and alienated from one another's inner lives, Go Talent on the Mountain has become a bridge too far for either the academic or the internet intellectual clickbait industrial complexes. It's too much of a work of art to find a place for itself in a conversation that, like ultimately all political conversations, yearns for simplicity. And so, like Savonarola burned the books of Ovid and Boccaccio because they distracted people from focusing their attention on God, we shove Go Talent on the Mountain under the carpet lest it distract us from the task at hand. And while there's no denying there's a utility to that narrow focus, there's also a tragedy. Baldwin was such a gifted artist and brilliant thinker. He deserves to be read in full, not just in convenient parts. Thank you. This has been Episode 4 of The Joy of Serious Literature. Wow. All this time and work in only four episodes. Well, hopefully they've been good episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful to have you. If you have anything you'd like to say to me, either good, bad, or indifferent, hit me up at vainlydrabsatan at gmail.com. It is my suspicion that more than a few of you will have some strong opinions about what I've had to say about Mr. Baldwin. Don't be shy. Send them my way. Also, consider giving The Joy of Serious Literature a review on iTunes. Or better yet, Recommend this ramshackle podcast to your friends. The more people we have thinking seriously about serious literature, the better the world will be. Maybe. Regardless, I've been your host, Brian Davis. Join me again next time, won't you, when we'll be talking about the little old short story by the Brazilian writer and self-proclaimed housewife Clarice Lispector called Report on the Thing. What is Report on the Thing? Report on the Thing is the story of a love affair carried on solely over the phone between Clarice Lispector and her friend's alarm clock.
it is so weird and so wild that it might change how you think about literature forever. Hope to see you there. Godspeed.